This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want a a Trump-like sniffle. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Matthew Iglesias uh, joined on a, a special Monday recording session by uh, my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. And uh, we are here early, bright and early, uh, because Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton debated last night, and we felt that the world would want to hear all about it. Um, what a time to be alive. It is. I'm so happy to be here with you both, here at the end of all things. <laughs> All right, so we're going to do this in, in three parts, and I think we have a, a great show because this – what happened here, what is happening in American politics is big. There are moments when you are living through something unusual and historic, and I think it can be hard sometimes to pull our heads up and see that. But American politics, one of our major political parties, is breaking down or reshuffling in, in, in a way that I have never seen happen before. And, and I want to try to use this, this hour we have to, to really go through it. So I want to talk about three things here today. The, the first is the civil war that, I, that is now brewing in the Republican Party. For a long time, I've been very skeptical of Republican Party crack-up theses. And now I think it is clearly true that affections around Trump are completely changing the dynamics of this election. The, the second thing I want to talk about or that we want to talk about is – Donald Trump's uh, promise to jail the leading candidate of the political opposition as soon as he is made president and around that some other democratic norm breaking he engaged in at the debate. That stuff I think is very important and is one of these things that could be – we hope not but but could be a a very dangerous turning point in American politics. And then finally, we we do want to go into the weeds here. There was a lot on Obamacare, on taxes, on policy in last night's debate – fair amount of it was total nonsense. A lot of word salad last and night. We should not totally miss that. But but let's begin with the defections. But what happened over the last week is that the tape, uh, this 2005 tape of Donald Trump saying some incredibly... What did he say? What did he say? He said, <laughs> among say other things, that when you are a star, they will let you do anything you want. You can grab them by the pussy. He bragged about sexual assault to Billy Bush, of all people. There's been, by the way, a lot of discussion about this being locker room talk. And I want to note, Donald Trump was not in a locker room. He was wearing a microphone on a television set talking to a television host. I I have done a fair amount of television. And when you're wearing the microphone before you go on, uh, you know it's sort of on but not broadcasting. And you're nervous when you pee. Like It's like a very weird time to know people can hear you. I do not understand how he went from that to bragging about trying to have sex with a married woman and and sexual assault. But he did because he is a broken man in some very fundamental ways. Anyway, this tape came out and what it did was that it it, it fundamentally changed the dynamic of the election in this way. It depolarized the election. It broke down the permission structure around Donald Trump. There were a lot of Republicans, particularly uh, elected Republicans, who had endorsed or backed Trump with a very high level of discomfort. They didn't want to be on his side, but they had to be because every other Republican was. There, even I think the, the sort of epitome of this was Ted Cruz, who in the worst timing of, of all time, 
finally endorsed Donald Trump two weeks ago and won phone banking for him. And the reason he did that was he had come to the conclusion that, one, Republicans had to win this election, if only to keep the Senate and the House, and two, that on some level, being a Republican at this point meant endorsing Donald Trump. What happened here, though, is that that dynamic began to play out in reverse. The audio was sort of a last straw moment. It didn't come on its own. It's after months of Donald Trump acting offensively, acting uh, unpredictably, erratically, dangerously. And a lot of Republicans began to pull out. I think a third of the Senate is now not endorsing Trump. A lot of people disendorsed him. And the, the reason that's really important is that the permission structure, the Republican Party's embrace of Trump had created a floor under him. He was pretty solidly going to be around 44, 46 percent of the two-party vote. Now that all these Republicans began doing the opposite, instead of saying that if you're a Republican, you have to endorse Trump, now they began saying if you're a good person, you probably have to not. You have to disendorse Trump. Now we're seeing a floor fallout. A new NBC Wall Street Journal poll shows Trump behind 14 points in a two-party race. And I think this is a real potential turning point in the election because it gives both voter, Republican officials, Republican or, or Republican-leaning independent voters and the media a chance to not treat Trump as a the Republican, right, which is a normalization, but as, an, as a sort of dangerous, aberrant figure, which is the denormalization. So after a long time where Trump was being normalized by the Republican Party, I think we are now seeing a force in which he is being denormalized. We don't know how far it will go, but I think it is this, – this election has now fundamentally changed. Well, and one question I have is like basically about that. How far does the denormalization go? Because I think you're right. Like there was over the weekend this feeling if you're going to be a good Republican, you you de-endorse Trump, you get off this bandwagon, you know, despite the fact this wasn't like a huge surprise. I, I think it was hard to say like, oh, my God, I can't believe Donald Trump said that. Like yeah. it was fitting it, with a lot of other things he said. The thing that I have trouble kind of gaming out in my head is, is – what happens to all these people who have been pretty strong supporters of Trump, who you know, have kind of stuck with him through most of this? I don't think you see the same sort of, you know, quick, quick movement away. There was the day after um, the Trump tape or two days after the Trump tapes came out, um, Politico and Morning Consult did a poll where they found 90 percent of Trump supporters said they were still Trump supporters. Maybe that's shifting. Like we have new polling now mm -hmm. suggesting that Trump is falling behind in the polls. But I, I'm actually like a little bit, a little bit like leery of trusting polling at this moment because I think like if someone calls you up and asks like who do you support, there's like that level of judgment. It's hard for me to understand how accurately the polls are going to capture what's going on. And one of the things that's kind of surprised me throughout the election that it's my sense it'll keep happening going forward, but who knows what'll happen in the next month, is that there's this there's a Donald Trump base, there's a base of this party we've called Republican that really likes what Donald Trump talks about, who says, you know, he is just saying it as it is. He is, you know, a very blunt person. And I think kind of contrasts himself with these WikiLeaks things with um, Clinton about the private versus public personality. I think, you know, you can definitely say about Donald Trump, he didn't, he didn't hide that this was yep. like how he talks. He didn't hide that this is how he feels about women. Like this has been a consistent characteristic. And I don't, I guess I don't have an expectation at this point that among that base of people that this changes, like just in some conversations with Trump supporters this weekend. Obviously, this is anecdotal, but there was no sense of change. Um, you know, I emailed with one Trump supporter I knew and the 
and another one, the kind of the sense was, well, this doesn't matter. Like there are big issues. There's ISIS like this does not matter. It's an 11 year old tape. That's kind of the defense that Trump offered at the debate. And that leaves the Republican Party in like a really weird situation, a situation I don't know how it goes forward. If you have this big Trump loss, do you have this base say we were wrong? You know, we're going to we're going to go with what the elite wants and like we're going to go back to some more traditional candidates or do they say, no, you bailed on our candidate. Like, you are the ones who sunk him. And, like, we want someone like Trump. And I don't know how – it's a very confusing time for, I'm sure, many of our listeners and for me, like, thinking through what happens to this group of people who who voted for Trump in the primaries, who seem to still support Trump and will likely, you know, go in and vote for him. Like, how do they how, – how is – what is their role in the Republican Party after this election? I think it's important to not exaggerate how much breaking with Trump has happened, even from the people who did break with Trump. That I think that if you if you look back to the original wave of sort of Republican defections from Trump, it, it was extraordinary that George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Mitt Romney, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice. I mean, these are the most prominent people in Republican Party politics over the past 10, 15 years were not endorsing Donald Trump. That sent to, you know, to the people sitting around this table, to I think a lot of the uh, elite sort of politics writers at, at establishment publications, you know, a very clear signal that leading figures in conservatism were not comfortable with Donald Trump. But two things happened sort of after that. One is that CNN, which plays a, I think, a somewhat unique role in the in the media ecosystem, um, followed to to a large extent by by some of the other you know television news, decided to stage an alternate reality where CNN is committed as a television show conceit to sort of two-sided debates, right? Mm -hmm. They originated Crossfire. They want to have panels that make for good television in which some people argue for one side and some people argue for the other side. So they got a different stable of conservative commentators than the ones they had been using for years so that they could get people who would make the case for Donald Trump. This guy, Jeffrey Lord, who was a nobody, became hugely elevated. Trump's former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, came on. There's this woman whose name I can't recall, but who's, I think, like the most sociopathic of them. Um, and they're on TV. <laughs> now I want to know whose name that is. Uh, she she was on last night. I, I, anyway, I, I apologize. I wish I could do footnotes uh, to, to an audio broadcast. Um, and that show, right, CNN's Trump versus Hillary show is still on. Like at the, at the debate last night, you didn't have uh, – and in part that there's a push and there's a pull to it, right? So like Kelly Ayotte disendorsed Trump because she didn't want the Donald Trump millstone around her neck. Kelly Ayotte did not want to – go on CNN and debate Donald Trump with Corey Lewandowski, right. right? But the way that you would send a signal to voters, the way you would send the Donald Trump is not normal signal to voters is you would have to go up and do that. You would have to join the argument, right? You could go on Fox News and argue with Sean Hannity. You could go on CNN and argue with Corey Lewandowski. Um, you could do what 
conservative Democrats did in the 1972 election, which was John Connolly, the governor of Texas, many of the more conservative Southern Democrats, uh, many of the building trades unions and the AFL-CIO, they endorsed Richard Nixon because they were not trying to save their skins from an unpopular Democratic nominee. They were actually trying to get him to lose because they didn't like him. Uh, and I have not really seen that. Even even Mitt Romney, who's like beef with Trump, is obviously genuine, has not like endorsed Hillary Clinton, has not put himself out there in conservative media aggressively. And in particular, anti-Trump conservatives have tended to go very quiet whenever the polls get more narrow, right, which is the opposite of what you do, right? If you are sitting around in white knuckle terror that Donald Trump might become yeah. president of the United States, you get more visible the closer the election becomes. But they've been doing the opposite, right? So like Condoleezza Rice is a uh, an African-American woman. She is uh, a moderate on many domestic issues. Uh, she is known throughout her career as a, a specialist on Russia and the former Soviet Union. It is inconceivable to me <laughs> that she thinks Donald Trump would be a good president. Right? And she and already it, said enough is enough. Well, he be president. she said it. Like just this weekend right, yeah, yeah. when this tape came out, right? Which I'm sure she found that tape repugnant. But like yes. it was the opposite of an effective political inter intervention, right? What she didn't do was like when Trump was riding high, come out with a Facebook statement saying, I disagree with Hillary Clinton about a lot of things, but I think this email hit on Hillary is kind of BS and Donald Trump is like a patsy for Vladimir Putin, right? She laid low – that whole time, she had, it turned out, an email exchange with Colin Powell in which they both seemed to agree that Trump was bad, but like they weren't going public. Then she instead kind of like kicked Trump when he was down, mm -hmm. which to me is a different – it's like it's, it's easy to distance yourself from a candidate who's clearly going to lose. So there are a lot of profiles in cowardice here. But I actually want to focus on the last thing you said because that is the way in which I think this dynamic is changing. I agree. Uh, with everything you said, except to de-emphasize the actual importance of the kicking when he's down dynamic. Because I think what has just happened and what is happening right now is that a lot of Republicans who were afraid to speak out against him when he was sufficiently high are using this as an opportunity to publicly commit um, to opposing him. And I'm not saying opposing him day in and day out on CNN, but to, but to coming out like with Condi Rice, doing a Facebook post saying he shouldn't be president, creating the signals that will be out there in the media that will be echoed now that he's down. And I do think this is tangible effect. So Paul Ryan came out today and he said he's not disendorsing Trump, but he's not going to defend him either. And every member of the House should do what is best in their district. So is that going to matter because Paul Ryan is going to start going on Fox News and argue with Sean Hannity. No, it won't. But that is one of a number of signals that is now being sent to resource allocating players in the Republican Party to not allocate resources to making the Donald Trump campaign victorious, right? There, Donald Trump is not running a very good campaign. The RNC, among others, has to make decisions about putting a lot of money into this one house district versus putting more money into broader battleground GOTV for Trump. And these decisions, I think, are, are starting to 
tip. There's already some evidence of the RNC pulling money from from different Trump battlegrounds. Uh, they're going to, I think, start moving to trying to hold the House. And that's actually a pretty important thing. It's one more uh, thing that pulls Trump behind. The other thing is that I, I think these things have a, a self-reinforcing quality. When Trump was up, a lot of these actors weren't coming out because the other ones weren't coming out. Now that he's down, you're starting to see them come out because the other ones are coming out. If Rob Portman and Kelly Ayotte and Lisa Murkowski and Jason Chaffetz and Condi Rice and all these folks have come out and said, because I'm a decent person, I have to step off the train. I think there there are other Republican elected officials who want to be seen in history as a decent person and are going to want to step off the train. And, and what that creates, which I do think is important, is it. The media has struggled about how to deal with Trump, and, and CNN was a great example of it. It has struggled between treating Trump as one thing he is, which is a Republican nominee, and as another thing he is, which is a dangerous aberration in American politics. And it kind of oscillates between the two things. The more the Republican Party abandons Trump, the more it sends the contrary signal that he is not a representative of the Republican Party, that he is something new. And look, you're seeing this new dynamic of Republicans disendorsing him. That creates a very different kind of media coverage, a delegitimizing kind of coverage, which is actually in pretty sharp contrast to the legitimizing kind of coverage the media has given Trump at many points in this election. So I do think it matters. I don't think it matters in the sense of – that the every institutional actor in the party will not just abandon but oppose him. But I think that one of my foundational premises is that Trump basically had a floor under him set by the Republican Party. And I think that floor is crumbling. And as that floor crumbles, the range of outcomes becomes much wider. And, and, and it goes to this poll today, this NBC Wall Street Journal poll that shows Trump behind by 11 points in a four-way race and 14 points in a two-way race. On the one hand, um, that could just be differential response. It could be that people who are Trump supporters, to, to Sarah's point, are no longer are embarrassed right now to say it to a pollster. It also could mean um, that Trump might end up with a vote share in the 30s, which I, I think is now possible because remember, he also doesn't have a GOTV. There's a lot going on here that, that, that could depress his share. I think his people are probably pretty discouraged. And and this feels to me like it, it it's going to go somewhere pretty rough for the Republicans. But that creates another problem. And this is what I, I meant when I said early on that I'm starting to become a believer in the Republican civil war. The original story of Donald Trump is a collision between the preferences of the Republican Party's elected class, which did not want Trump, and both other kinds of Republican elites, like media elites who are more uh, open to him and very much the Republican base, which did want Trump. Now you're going to have a situation where Trump potentially loses by a very big margin, where Republicans lose the Senate, where they maybe even lose the House. And what has happened at the end is that the Republican elected establishment, in the eyes of many conservative voters, stabbed Trump in the back. They disendorsed. They went out and and, and went for themselves. And it's not like they're aligned. Um, I, I think Sarah mentioned a Politico poll that pretty quickly found that most Republicans wanted Trump to stay in. Now, maybe that will change in the coming days, but I, I, I bet a good 80, 70 percent of them will stick with wanting Trump to be the nominee and 40 percent of them will stick with loving Trump and feeling that he has been like crucified by a corrupt Republican establishment, by a corrupt media. And Trump, I think, is only going to encourage that. He's already been tweeting about, you know, the hypocrites who, you know, have abandoned me. will see their poll numbers drop. 
you know, he might start Trump TV to try to, you know, get his super intense audience there. So if we see a, a fight in the Republican Party, a genuine civil war, I think this is what it's going to look like. I think a lot of actors are going to feel betrayed by the Republicans who abandoned Trump. Sean Hannity tweeted or wrote a couple months ago that if Trump loses, he was going to blame all these media figures like the Wall Street Journal that were not sufficiently pro-Trump. And there's going to be a, a coterie of folks. The Republican Party isn't abandoning Trump en masse. Part of it is splitting. And part of it is not just staying, but furious at the splitters and will blame them for whatever negative for conservatism outcomes emerge, like, for instance, Hillary Clinton naming the swing Supreme Court justice. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel OK about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. I guess it makes me more skeptical of this idea that the tape leads to leads to an implosion on election day, that you end up with this like really low vote share because Republicans have been given permission to walk away. Um, I don't know. It sounds like it's a hard thing for me to think through at this point, and that sounds like a plausible scenario, but I wouldn't write off the idea that you have a lot of people who are getting very energized by this. I don't know how many of them are. I don't think we knew the people who— really support Trump. I don't think we had like a good sense of how how many of them there were until his election came and it happened and Trump was there was a candidate. But like if you if you read Breitbart, which is, you know, a, a very the world that a lot of these people are living in, I mean, I mean, it's great news for Trump. Like Trump is doing great and they're using the the defections. They're using all mm -hmm. this change as kind of a rallying cry. The thing I have trouble thinking through is like how many other people there are to be rallied who, like, weren't rallied already? Like, if you look at the people who voted in the primaries, like, the really intense voters, is that the universe of his support? Or, like, are there are there other people who are looking at this saying, like, yeah, this guy is getting, like, betrayed. Like, this guy is getting stabbed in the back by his party. I, I don't I don't know how, how all these defections play out, but I, I am less—I could see it going either way of, you know, leaving Trump with a similar vote share to what he had before or— or ending up, like you said, with this like historically low. No, I think this is share. really bad for them. I mean, I, I think it goes to your point. Breitbart is not a big website. Like they they loom large in people's heads, but they're not a big yeah, website. I mean, it's no Vox.com. Right. <laughs> we, we, we read the stats. You know, yeah, like they're, they're not month, as big but... as we are. So it's and and I mean we're huge and a, a juggernaut in the new media landscape, but we don't represent all of America either. You would uh, not say it's a winning campaign strategy to get good coverage 
only on Fox. <laughs> this right. is a real. There are not sure, that but if many you read Fox like Fox News, like it's it's similar headlines. That's already starting to waver. Like Megyn Kelly and Sean Hannity are in a fight about Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, this is what I mean that. This is the primary strategy over again. Like what, what, how Donald Trump won the primary was he recognized that a fairly small but highly activated base of super fans could actually triumph in a multi-candidate field and, and, and win. But it's a pretty small number of people. What has been happening is that Trump has had to add on, not just like the people who like him, which let's say it's pretty big, right? If 33% of the country likes Trump, that's a ton of fucking people. But he also needs people who kind of don't like him. And if you look in polls, we know that the majority of people, like 60-some percent of people, have a negative view of Donald Trump. But we also know that Donald Trump is outpolling his favorables, right? So like 60-some percent of the population is is negative. Uh, but he's – and I forget what the approval numbers are, but he's higher than his approvals. He routinely polls higher than the number of people who think he is qualified to serve in office. And like that delta there are people who – don't like Donald Trump, but are going along with this because they're Republicans. They don't like Hillary Clinton. If that group drops, yeah. like that's a disaster. Right. I so guess to, I just don't know if like these senators coming out like leads right. that group. It may not. I don't know where. We haven't seen this. I can't think of this like happening before. So like yeah. does that group have permission or do they still say like better than the alternative? So I, I think there's like there's two big like downside risks out there for Republicans. One is that the news cycle – becomes filled with infighting, mm -hmm. right? Either because Trump lashes out at some of the people who've abandoned him because one of the abandoners says something really pointed that gets on the headlines because Sean Hannity stirs up some shit. I mean, you don't know exactly why, but it's just if the dominant story becomes Republicans are arguing with each other about whose fault this is, I think that's just bad for morale. Right. It tends to depress the turnout of Republicans who like Trump and of Republicans who don't like Trump because it's just like it's a it's a bad vibes story and it distracts attention from their common ground, which is that they don't like Hillary Clinton. Right. Like what, what Paul Ryan clearly would like to do is somehow have there be no more stories that are about <laughs> Donald Trump and to just talk about the fact that baseline Republican Party voters don't think that Hillary Clinton has good ideas about America, right? Because he can – Democrats can even go up two or three points in the generic ballot and he can hold his majority, right? Yeah. What they can't do is go up eight or nine points. And the way they get up that high is for Republicans to just be like sad. Um, but, but they could easily get sad by mm -hmm. getting embroiled in, in fighting. I mean his position that he is not going to comment on like the – most important, most interesting political story. It's, I mean, it's good for him. He's very disciplined, but it's hard to make that really stick, right, as a, as a strategy. The other thing is that because this is a podcast and, and not print, I'm going to toss out the bold prediction that I think there is more Trump oppo out there. Yeah. Um, I don't even think that's that bold a prediction. I think it would be <laughs> curious if the 1995 tax return leaker only had access to one year's worth of Donald Trump's tax returns. I don't know who that would be, right, who only had the one year. Um, I think this idea that a threat of a lawsuit for $5 million is keeping every single person who worked on any season of The Apprentice sitting on this videotape is like a little not credible, right? 
all it takes is one guy who had access to that footage who is a Democrat who would like to be famous to put that out or there. wouldn't like to be famous and just gave it to the or, Clinton or does campaign it very anonymously. Right. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and I think that something people have not fully understood in this campaign, but that I firmly believe based on uh, years of reporting that the Clinton campaign believes to be true is that it is still too soon to put out your best anti-Trump oppo. Um, campaign effects are very real and they are very short-lived, mm -hmm. right? Stuff fades out. Normally, a campaign releases some good dirt unoptimally early because they fall behind at some point and they want to change the story. They need to get the donors and the volunteers and stuff back on sides. Clinton has never been behind. So she's never had a reason. If there's like a good bag of tricks there to throw the best stuff out there. So I think there is something probably that they have that will come out after the third debate when there's nothing, no time left to, to hold it for. And Republicans are dealing with, you know, elected officials who are trying to position themselves. They're dealing with a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, we know for a fact that there is something very embarrassing in Donald Trump's tax returns. I mean, like mm -hmm. that is clearly true. And we know that there is someone who is leaking some of Donald Trump's tax returns. And you really have to ask yourself if you're running somewhere, does that person have the embarrassing information and it just isn't out? Has Hillary Clinton had this for months? Like, is that why that's been more of a point of emphasis than Donald Trump's, uh, you know, like housing discrimination lawsuit? I mean, you don't know. Uh, but it's a it's a big, 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 hazy cloud hanging over this whole thing that I think is one of the reasons why the tape precipitated so much bolting was mm -hmm. it was a, a little bit of a like an oh shit moment that like okay that's the tape we just saw it's not the only tape of donald trump that exists and to your point because uh, i think your timing point is really important here the tape came out two days before a debate the tape didn't come out randomly it came out at a time maximally calculated to rattle donald trump and interrupt any debate prep he was doing so he could get back on his feet, right? They, they, they try it like this was the ultimate provocation. So, yeah, I think it's very likely there's other stuff out there and they are not releasing it randomly. They are releasing it times that they have planned to hurt him the most. But I want to go back to the first thing you said, because I think it's a good segue to our, our, our second topic here. You talked about how the connective tissue in the Republican Party, the, the lowest common denominator right now is hatred for Hillary Clinton. That is ultimately what could hold the coalition together. It is what Donald Trump thinks will hold the coalition together. And Trump, in his often kind of ham-handed, making too much subtext text way, decided to take a stab at this, at the debate. He decided to create a debate that, because he lives inside the Breitbart universe, would be the one that he thought Republicans who hated Hillary Clinton wanted to see and hear. So right before the debate, Donald Trump sent out a tweet and said, please join me for my debate prep live on Facebook. And he was holding a press conference with Juanita Broderick, Kathleen Willey, and Paula Jones, 
who are three women who have accused Bill Clinton of sexual misconduct of some sort or another. Then at the debate, very early on, he said, I hate to say this. I didn't want to say this. But if I'm elected, I will appoint a special prosecutor to look into Hillary Clinton. And then she said, well, it's a good thing you're not president. And he said to just make everything perfectly clear. Yes, because if I was president, you would be in jail. So what he did was he went out um, and he didn't play to like Republicans hate Hillary Clinton. He played to Breitbart's form of hatred for Hillary Clinton, which is not she's a bad person or has bad ideas and shouldn't be president. But people need to know that her husband is a sexual predator and that she should she is literally a criminal who should be in jail. And this, I think, was a very bad move. Um, and, and it was a bad move for a couple of reasons. And in addition to being in, uh, certainly in, in some forms a, a pretty scary move. But what Trump did was rather than create a narrative that is going to – he could have really just focused on emails and Benghazi. He had a couple of good shots on her like when he was arguing she's a tool of special interest and why doesn't she donate to her own campaign. He had some reasonable attack lines in there. But instead, he created a storyline where one, Republicans remember – what happened when they tried to attack Bill Clinton, who was actually the guy who did this stuff, potentially did this stuff um, for it, and then lost the 1998 midterm election that they should have won. So Republicans really didn't want Trump to go down this road, particularly elite Republicans. Um, but number two, Trump in a very fundamental way called a very basic foundational norm of our democratic process into question, which is that we resolve political disputes through elections, not through jailing the opposition. And so what the media is talking about afterwards, because the media is very invested in the idea that there is a free democratic system, because one thing in that free democratic system is we don't get thrown in jail usually for writing things that candidates don't like. There is a tremendous amount of talk correctly about Trump posing a threat to the country. And so rather than having opened a conversation about Hillary Clinton's misdeeds, he has actually opened a question about his own tendency for vengeance and the ways in which his uh, somewhat erratic, somewhat vengeful, somewhat autocratic personality would interact with the powers of the American presidency. And one dimension of this is that it is scary. It is scary to have a man like this, this close to the presidency. But the other dimension of it is it was unwise because what Donald, the real problem Donald Trump was facing was not that Republicans didn't hate Hillary enough. It's that they were not sure he should be president and things like the leaked audio had made them even more unsure he should be president. And rather than solving that problem and doing something that would make him look more presidential, he made himself look more like a threat to the very system itself, more like the kind of unusual radical agent who you might actually need to break with the normal boundaries of partisanship to make sure never takes the presidency. So one, I think we're in a dangerous place that this is even on the table. But two, I think it was a very bad move. And one that the campaign is sticking with. Like you had yep. vice presidential candidate Mike Pence saying like, you know what I thought was the best part of the debate was when he said he'd put Clinton in jail. Yep. And I, I mean, I think it speaks to, and this is a theme we've hit on the weeds before, but the Kind of some of the structural things of the Trump campaign, like you were saying, like it's a it's a Breitbart universe. It's a pretty small group of people. There are a lot of people staking out Trump Towers on Saturday where um, Maggie Haberman in The Times had a great piece about kind of Trump increasingly being kind of alone and upset in his like large tower in Manhattan. But it really is this kind of small core group of people that see that don't seem to be creating any sort of challenge to the way that Trump views the world. And I think that kind of speaks to if you think of 
how do you end up with a line like this in the debate? You end up with it when no one is going to say, like, Mr. Trump, like, maybe maybe that's not a good campaign move. Or if anyone who says that maybe just is not is not going to be listened to, is not going to be part of the inner circle. But it is kind of, I mean, it strikes me as a little bit incredible that you kind of have Mike Pence, who on Saturday was, like, upset and, like, there's rumors he's, like, going to drop off the ticket, on Monday has fallen back in line saying, you know, I think this was the best part of the debate. I thought he was so strong. And I think that really pushes back. You know, there's this kind of ethos over the weekend of you know, Trump, uh, Pence should take the ticket, Trump should drop drop off. I think this makes absolutely clear, like, there is not a, a Republican savior right. in Mike Pence. Like, if anything, he takes a lot of the, the blame for the rise of Trump and mm-hmm. joining the ticket, saying, I endorse this guy, like, I'm a good conservative. And really, like, this is kind of a nail in the coffin where he decides he's going to take this thing that is, like, very much at the core of uh, of the way that, like you said, that Trump's base hates Hillary and say, like, that is that is the best. That is the one moment I want to draw attention to. Mike Pence is part of Trump now. Like, he is not he is not a split from Trump or an option to split from Trump at this point. I was a little surprised by how taken aback people were by that moment. And I I guess one reason is that I watched what struck me at the time as a bizarre spectacle that did not seem to get people uh, feeling what was all that bizarre, but was James Comey delivered a little talk uh, to the American people about Hillary's email thing, in which he said that there was not a prosecutable crime. And then because he knew that Republicans didn't want to hear that, he totally threw the normal standards of prosecutorial ethics out the window and just gave a like off-topic series of political hits on Hillary Clinton, which is the kind of thing that, I mean, it would get anyone else fired immediately for doing that, right? If you're a police detective— and you just cleared somebody of a crime, you don't go out of the cameras and talk a lot of shit about it, right? <laughs> and no, I don't blame Comey. I know some people like deep in Clinton world are like, oh my God, how could Comey have done that? I think Comey was in a, a tough position institutionally and to defend the standing of the FBI and to some extent the integrity of the federal prosecutorial process, he had to undermine it a little bit and like say to Republicans, okay, guys, you wanted some good attack ads on Hillary Clinton. Here here are the ads. <laughs> here is me just like saying she's bad, right? But there's no crime. We're not prosecuting, right? So you would have thought Republicans might have said, okay, I'm going to bank that as a win. Yeah, That's, that's a win. <laughs> We're going to do the ads, right? Even Barack Obama's own FBI director says she was extremely careless. But that's not what they did. They hauled him before Congress so that they could all give him a hard time. <laughs> and, you know, so we had Jason Chaffetz, who there is a very clear distinction between Chaffetz and Trump, right? He was always a lukewarm Trump guy, a Trump non-endorser, a Mormon. He's from Utah where Trump is unpopular. Nothing to do with Trump. Says, I've defended your integrity every 
every step of the way, but I'm mystified and confused. Uh, Trey Gowdy, who's like a moron, uh, <laughs> you know, said, well, why is she being treated differently than the rest of us would be? When Comey um, explained exactly why before. And so they, they gave him this. It was like a whole weird afternoon where, again, I, Comey is a Republican. Uh, he was a, a high-ranking member of the George W. Bush uh, Justice Department. Every FBI director ever in history has been a Republican. Um, the staff of the FBI, I mean, I, I don't have the data, but like it, it's a lot of Republican guys, right? If there was some like secret cover-up, A, why would there be a secret cover-up? <laughs> B, like somebody would have leaked about it. See, it's honestly not that mysterious. Like, she didn't break the law. That's why he didn't recommend prosecuting her. But they all went, like, in on this in, like, a weird way. Anyway, when Trump picked up the same baton everyone else had been doing, I mean, I agree. They were all, like, a little bit more sort of clever about it. Chaffetz was like, I don't know, Director Comey. It's mysterious to me why she hasn't been locked up. Whereas Trump was just like, yeah, you should throw her in jail. Um, but this is where they've all gone on this issue. And it's it's really odd to me. I don't even understand what crime it is they think she's committed. Um, but it this is – it's a little bit Trump being different from Republicans because it's like Trump just coming out with the applause line while other people have come out with the like savvy political strategy. But the the sentiment is is fairly common. And I think, you know, I think we're seeing this is going to be the dominant uh, if Republicans do hold the House, the dominant political story of January 2017 is going to be the ongoing investigation into the matter of the 33,000 uh, deleted emails that that she says is, is personal and and why she isn't in jail for it. I think that's right. I mean, I do think I do understand why last night had a crystallizing effect because there has been a slow build of something is weird here. Um, the other bizarre spectacle is obviously the Republican convention. You had Chris Christie doing that very strange she's guilty speech where he was just talking about like she's guilty of having a bad health care policy and guilty of, you know, doing stuff I don't like. Christie potentially is actually guilty of some crimes <laughs> related crimes. to Bridgegate uh, and some bad stuff has come out around there. Uh, but obviously you had uh, – who's the general who's gone totally – Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn <laughs> um, saying she should be in jail. So you saw that happening there. But there's actually – and I'm forgetting a little bit about what it was. But there's actually a moment in Trump's speech where he backed off of that. I don't I don't remember the exact line, but he was like, we are going to beat her in an election. Yes. And then and so fine. It w it seemed like one of these things where the id of the Republican Party had through some officials on the stage gotten a little bit out of control. But, you know, OK, more clear, cooler heads will prevail. It's fine. What Trump did here was he came out and he said, and this is contra to the Republicans saying, oh, my God, you know, the FBI, it's not it's not doing what we thought it would do. He came out and said, I will subvert the normal process. I will use the powers of my office in a way that pleases me and I will just put her in jail. And one reason I think that had this little the, the uh, a larger effect than than other things have is one, it was a presidential nominee saying it. But two, I think people believe this is true about Donald Trump. So Dara Lind did a fantastic piece for Vox. I, I really recommend people read this. If you Google Vox and how Trump could punish his enemies, you will find it. It is a, a wonderful piece of reporting. But she really looked with some detail into the ways that a vengeful president could use the powers of the executive branch to harass, hurt, and, and otherwise punish those who have wronged him or her. 
And there's a lot there. It's not just appointing special prosecutors and throwing people in jail. It's using the IRS. It's using the antitrust power of the Department of Justice, which Trump, by the way, has alluded to that he would use antitrust against Jeff Bezos because he is mad about the Washington Post coverage of him. It is using the um, just like basic regulatory apparatus to harass businesses that you don't like. It's using the contracting money to take business away from uh, – contractors who in some way are owned by or invested in by folks like Mark Cuban. There is a tremendous amount you can do. It's a very big government. And at any given moment, there are, and this is a bad thing, so many regulations and laws that if you really want to look, most people are probably in violation of something. So so Trump can do a lot there. He has articulated himself that he is a vengeful person. He has said in his 2007 book that his philosophy on life is that if he is wronged, he will do it 10 times harder back to the person who did it to him. So we know he has this tendency in him. We know he has bragged about it. And now he's just coming out and saying it. He's coming out and saying he would use the architecture and machinery of the state to punish those who have wronged him. And that's really scary. And it's not just about Clinton. Like as a member of the press, I completely think Donald Trump would try to retaliate against the press. He's talked about re, he's talked about trying to uh, reform libel law so it is easier to sue members of the press. We know with the Obama administration, which has tried to bring uh, lawsuits against folks who absorbed leaks, uh, classified leaks. Trump could do a lot with that. Um, you, you can go yet further than where the Obama administration did. I think the Obama administration has gone too far on this stuff. And there's just a tremendous amount that could be done. And what Trump has done is give like a giant signal that he just would do it. And that's scary. It is, a gen- it is genuinely scary to have a man like that so close to the presidency. And, and, and to your point, Sarah, which I think is right on, it is also scary to see – the people around Trump who were supposed to act as a guardrails, right? Like the argument for like a Mike Pence is that he is a veteran, established, normal politician who and Trump choosing him suggested that Trump was going to have those kinds of advisors around him guiding and restraining him. Mike Pence coming out and pathetically endorsing that moment in in the debate it shows that no, there would be no check. It would just be Trump would only listen to the people who backed him up. And and even in any case, a lot of the people who you might think would have more restraint, like your Chris Christie's, like your Mike Pence's, don't. That this impulse is lying there latent in the Republican Party, waiting for the correct autocrat to come along and 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 use it. Yeah, but he's going to at least take the lines out of the states. And- <laughs> oh yeah, what? the lines are gone. That's good. That was a transition. Was really- oh, I see. Yes, we're, we're removing the lines between the segments. No lines between states, between insurance markets. It's going to be beautiful. So we had a surprising amount of actual policy talk, um, particularly on Obamacare. It was very surprising to me to have a good like seven or eight minutes. Um, A lot of it was like very word salad, like who knows what was happening. But then (laughs) I read the transcript so I would know what was happening. It was surprising to see it discussed to such an extent. And um, when you read through it, it... you know, when I was listening to Donald Trump, I was like, I don't even know if he knows what his health policy is here. But it, you can actually distill it down to a few things for each of the candidate. And there's some other policies I think we'll hit, too. But we'll start with Obamacare because why not? Um, I think what you saw, two things that were interesting to me in the healthcare part. One was Clinton being a little bit critical of the law in the way the Obama administration isn't. Um, she was pretty I, – I was surprised when you had this questioner ask about rising premiums that she didn't even, like, bother to mention these subsidies. Like, this is something I hear from the administration all the time. Like, yes, you have these rising premiums, but there are subsidies. 
And she just said, yeah, the premiums, premiums are too high. And this is like, it suggests to me in a way I didn't think about before that a new Democratic administration would be more willing to criticize the law, would be more willing to speak. She was just willing to say, you know, the premiums are too high. Like, that is a problem with Obamacare. That was essentially at the core of Clinton's remarks about this, or Bill Clinton's remarks about this being a crazy system. It's been interesting to see that dynamic on the left. Um, Donald Trump had like a very bizarre version of like what Obamacare would look like if he were president or what health care would look like. And he spent a lot of time talking about how Obamacare is too expensive. Like it's become so burdensome for the government. They keep asking for more money. Totally removed from the truth. I think one of the big misconceptions we found in polling that we've done is that Obamacare has come in over budget. It's actually been well below the cost that um, that CBO projected. Some of this is bad news for Obamacare. It means less people are signing up, and that means we have to spend less on subsidies. But it's just patently false that this thing is too expensive. And then, as Matt was alluding to, there's this very bizarre idea that we're going to fix all of what is wrong with American health care by allowing insurers to sell across state lines. So this is an idea that kind of floats around in conservative health policy. Usually it's part of a suite of ideas. And I want to emphasize that normally Republicans say those words, which have meaning and Oh, yes. Instead of we're going to get rid of the lines, usually it's we'll let insurance companies sell across. Sell policies across state lines, which if you're listening, you can say, oh, what he's saying is that currently you can't sell policies across state lines, but in the new Republican paradigm, they will. Trump doesn't, I mean, we do like explanatory journalism (laughs) about policy and Trump just like doesn't. He just kept saying, kept saying there's lines around the right. states and we're going to get rid of <laughs> Yeah, the And this was basically like it. It was not clearly conveyed, but it was the lines were like the th- – and then there was like a quick mention at the end and like, oh, by the way, block grant Medicaid. But so the, the lines, the lines were really to be clear, are thing. that states have yes. borders. Can I, yes. Can, can I do a quick riff on, on this policy? Or would you like well, to well I want to explain for, yeah, what the policy yeah, is yeah. and then you can riff on it. So the idea is right now every state gets to send their own sell, set their own policies for selling. So New York, for example, has a lot of insurance mandates. Like you have to cover maybe like fertility treatments. You have to cover, um, you know, different sorts of things, whereas other states are very lax. Like in Alabama, maybe there's certain things you don't have to cover that you cover in New York. So the idea here is that we can increase insurance competition by letting these plans in Alabama – also sell in New York. The people in New York who want less robust coverage can buy those cheaper plans and you have more insurance co- in more insurance coverage or more insurance competition. And now I will turn it over to Ezra for, for some riffing on this. I can't stand this policy. I think it's one of the <laughs> most bizarre. There, there are two insurance equilibriums that make sense in American healthcare. One is to have national, in, national insurance regulation, right? To say that we have identified as a country what is the line here. Another is to let states do it. That makes sense too. States are closer to their people. Different states want a different equilibrium. Fine. The idea that the way you would regulate American healthcare is to let the least regulatory state do it is absolutely baffling. So if you get a credit, if you note your credit card statement, basically all credit card statements come from South Dakota. And the reason they all come from South Dakota is that South Dakota is that you can sell credit card policies across state lines. And South Dakota, a while ago, decided they wanted to get a bunch of credit card jobs in their in their state. And so they basically 
took down all credit card regulation. And so everybody located there. And so you have a tremendous amount and, and for a very long time had a tremendous amount of really sneakish behavior from the credit card industry. Sort of these sorts of things like you would default on something and then all of your credit card rates would go up without anybody telling you. A lot of this got regulated in Dodd-Frank. But we had a very long time where the way credit cards was regulated was insane. And the way the reason it was insane was that we had set up a competition where whichever state wanted jobs from the credit card industry could get them by giving the lowest level of regulation possible. And then people in other states who did not want to be screwed over by credit card companies had no choice. They just got sold stuff they didn't understand and that had very, very, very little protections built around it. It wouldn't even work is the other thing. So like this is so you have this like credit card analogy. You can't relocate your doctor offices. You can't relocate your hospital. So there was this great study that um, Sabrina Corlett, um, she's a researcher at Georgetown, did in 2012 that I wrote about during the 2012 election um, at our old blog that I used to write with Ezra. And I probably should write about again today because why not? Bring it back. Uh, (laughs) Let's play the hits. (laughs) But she found, she looked four states. There's nothing stopping states from doing this. Like a state can say anyone can sell here. And four states did that. And insurance competition didn't increase. And, you know, her argument around this is that building an insurance network is hard. You know, if you are this Alabama plan and like your headquarters in Alabama and all of a sudden you need to create an insurance network in New York and you need all these doctors and like you need to get these hospitals on board and like negotiate rates. The obstacle to selling in new states doesn't seem to be the benefit mandates. The obstacles to selling in new states seems to just be the difficulty of setting up an insurance network. I want to say, though, I I want to emphasize, though, you guys are arguing against Mike Pence's health care plan. But the remarkable thing to me about this Donald Trump performance is that Donald Trump does not seem to be familiar with Donald Trump's talking points on these policy issues. And one thing that I've repeatedly seen is that you guys who are well versed in healthcare policy. (laughs) Very accusatory. No, 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 (laughs) no. Like Sarah understood what conservative healthcare talking points Donald Trump was alluding to and can explain what the policy behind those talking points is. But Trump did not use the talking points correctly. There was another thing which I criticized in my article where Donald Trump said Russia is new in terms of nuclear, which was baffling to me. And I interpreted as Trump saying that Russia's nuclear weapons program is new um, when, in fact, it dates back to 1949. Um, Someone from inside the conservative defense universe informed me that what Trump was trying to say is that Russia has undertaken an expensive nuclear forces modernization program that the United States has not done. There is this like proposal in the new budget for us to go do it. Um, which good, good for Trump. But that's not what he said. You know, he said this thing about the corporate income tax, which he didn't say he was cutting the corporate income tax rate, but that's what he was referencing. And then he said, lowering taxes is, quote, so important for corporations because we have corporations leaving, massive corporations and little ones. Little ones can't form. And that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. That's not – I know what the argument for a lower corporate income tax rate is. It has to do with double taxation of capital and like there's a lot you can do. Little corporations can't form? Like that's ridiculous. And it, he doesn't know what he's saying. 
And to me, it's been one of the most remarkable aspects of the, the Trump campaign. It's Hillary Clinton is unusual in how uh, much of a veteran she is of national politics. It's actually quite typical for a presidential nominee to be kind of underpowered in terms of their knowledge of these issues. Um, you know, o- Obama was, Mitt Romney was when he ran. Bill Clinton certainly was in 1992. Some other people like Howard Dean, who didn't work out, were. George W. Bush certainly was. Uh, but what they do is over the course of the campaign, they give you this um, uh, hero's journey yeah. in which they amass increasingly impressive rosters of advisors and they show increasingly sophisticated knowledge of the issues. This Trump and the lines around the states thing, this was gibberish. Wait, Marco can I Ru- just read it though? Ma- Ma- like, yeah, what, what did he say? say? So there are three times he mentioned the lines that I found. <laughs> One is you're going to have to you're going to have plans that are so good because we're going to have competition once we break out the lines and allow the competition to come. Later is when we get rid of those lines, you'll have competition. The last is we have to get rid of the lines around the state, artificial lines where we stop insurance companies from coming in and competing because they want. And President Obama, whoever is working on it, they want to leave those lines because that gives insurance companies essentially monopolies. Open borders for health care. Right. Also, just real quick, and I know that I'm doing exactly what Matt is criticizing me for doing here, but I just want to know when he says you'll have insurance products so good <laughs> – when people think of what a good insurance product is, they think it's often expensive, but they <laughs> think of something point. that covers your health care. Like the thing that makes insurance good is that it's actually really reliable. The literal thing you are trying to make possible to do by getting rid of the lines is have much worse, thinner right. insurance like this that is, covers right. fewer things. This is That's the complaint about Obamacare, that like you have all these yes. plans to choose from and they're really crappy plans with high deductibles. He's already complaining about the deductibles in Obamacare, but his literal plan is to make it possible to have much higher deductibles that cover fewer things. So right. I recognize and he that doesn't, I am falling no, into but, the but, trap. But, but, but that is to the point. He doesn't know what he's proposing, right? It's a copy of a copy of a copy <laughs> of, a, of a plan, right? There's somewhere in like the Heritage Foundation basement, there's an insurance plan that this is a provision of. And like someone who read that plan told him something about lines between the states. But in February, Marco Rubio was making fun of him for this, like, lines gibberish. And and Rubio was not attacking the content of the idea. Like, he's a paid-up Republican. He believes in this interstate competition nonsense. But he was just making the point in the February debates that Donald Trump doesn't know what he's talking about. He's just ranting and raving um, because health care policy is not important to Donald Trump's political appeal, you know, which is like about other things, right? But normally, just as a politician, what happens is is you have the issues you want to talk about, but you are forced to sometimes address other issues, and you show over time that you can get better at it. And Trump just doesn't do that. And he... Sometimes I want to say he's gotten away with it. Now he looks like he's losing. But but the reason why traditionally we have expected politicians to, to show this is not because voters care necessarily about the sophistication of your health insurance talking points. But it's because we understand that something that happens when you're president is that unexpected stuff happens. Obama didn't like want to deal with a Gulf of Mexico oil spill. That wasn't like a good – agenda setting for him. But it happened. And you have to get some people on the phone, some of like your B-list advisors. You got to find some experts. Uh, You got to work it out. And Trump does not work out anything. 
at all. He has no idea what's going on on, on any of these issues. Um, even on his like core trade thing, he can't state correctly what the sophisticated argument is that Bill Clinton's policy is undermined American manufacturing jobs. He just – he gets good cheers for this line about NAFTA being the worst deal ever. So he just keeps saying it and like he's completely indifferent to this question. And Trump has done a lot of stuff that's like grosser than be kind of like your ignorant uncle ranting and raving. But I do think there's like a baseline that you should be able to recognize with people who are on your side, right? It's like, okay, I might like agree with my one friend, broadly speaking, about who you should vote for in politics and who the bad guys are. But I have lots of friends who are like that, who are just like they're not knowledgeable about politics and government. And it's good that they are in other lines of work. And like they're nice people. I don't have a problem with them. But like that's Donald Trump. Like why would he be president? It's it's a ridiculous idea. Well, and it speaks to – it's something we were talking about earlier, this idea of you know not, not having his views either challenged or informed by advisors. Mike Pence is someone who really knows conservative health policy. Like when I, he has done kind of a lot of pioneering stuff in terms of, you know, setting the agenda. There's a lot of governors right now who are trying to copy what Mike Pence did in Indiana with his block grant. So there is like someone he is very close to who could very easily like walk him through. Like these are my ideas on health care. They are quite popular with like Republicans. There's evidence they're both increasing coverage and lowering costs. Like I think I have a Wait, good idea here. I think here. Donald Trump doesn't even know that. No, I don't know. Like, I don't think he say, does. Look at Mike Pence. Right. We're going to use Whereas, that. Whereas, like, you have like all these Republican governors saying, like, look at Mike Pence. I want to do what Mike Pence does in Indiana in my state. Like, Kentucky is literally trying to do that at this very moment. And so I think it speaks to what you're saying, what we were saying earlier, that there are these people here, and at least some of them are like quite informed. On um, on policy issues, you do not see that translating onto the debate stage in any real way. Trump's extraordinary flaws have a tendency to distract from his ordinary but very consequential flaws. And I think this is one of those places. The fact that he is holding – it's threatening to jail his political opponent and holding press conferences with uh, Bill Clinton's sexual misconduct accusers can distract from the fact that everything he said on policy is gibberish. And so I would say um, – in conclusion, I am not sure he'd be a good president. I'm, I'm starting to doubt that he is uh, a good choice for president of the United States. Yeah. Come in next week to see if, if the pivot has occurred <laughs> and persuaded us. Uh, I'm going to make a quick plug here if we're winding down. Uh, it's very related to the show. My, my interview on the Ezra Klein show this week is with Francis Fukuyama about what is hap- whether the American political system is decaying. And I think that if you have enjoyed this set of topics, you might enjoy listening to that. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro, to Matt and Sarah, and to all of you fine people who are here this week. And we'll be here, we hope, next week. <laughs>